I can't possibly, as a white cisgender woman with a heck of a lot of privilege, I can't possibly claim to speak for a racialized trans person, but I can sure as heck try to amplify their voice in the legislature until there's a racialized trans person sitting with me in there. I'll, I'll do the best I can to be there for them, not to speak for them, but to try to amplify their voices. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash forgottencornerpod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. back to the Forgotten Corner podcast. We are proud members of the Harbinger Media Network. And if you're looking to check out some other podcasts similar to this, go ahead and uh, give Big Shiny Takes a try, Jeremy's other show, uh, The Progress Report, and Kino Lefter. I am Scott Schmidt, your co-host alongside Jeremy Appel. How are you doing today, buddy? Hello, I'm... I'm doing pretty well. I uh, I swear have... to God, if you say I have journalism in the pipeline right now, no, I'm no, it's not in the, the pipeline the anymore. It's uh, it's uh, it's at Tidewater. It's you've got you've got a. I actually saw you have a story out today. I want to read about Brett Wilson, but yeah, yeah, the definitive guide to uh, his orphan wells. He's a beaut. He, he yeah, uh, that's one way of putting it. Yeah, we're probably not getting him on the show, but let's let's move to we, our- we should get him on the show. That would be awesome. Yeah, he would never do it because he's a coward who hates free speech. But he called me a cub reporter. I thought you were gonna say he called me a cuck. And I'm like, that <laughs> no, sounds I, like something. No, no, uh, that's uh, uh, Keen Bexty was throwing that word around this this week. Do you still follow that fuck? No, I don't follow him. But I mean, like you check out and all of a sudden he's trending. I had to see why. And then I was watching all those videos. Yeah, he he got arrested. And look, I'm not I'm not like uh, a huge defender of the boys in blue, but you got to give it to them on this one. Oh, my God. Did you? Okay, we could we could go on forever. But there, I posted a video yesterday from Ontario of this woman that was like charging at a journalist speaking in tongues. Oh yeah, Sean O'Shea, and then giving Global. hugs he's, to he's everyone, legendary. including the cops, because they. Oh, anyway, it's, we're <laughs> the next few months are going to be such a shit show. Oh, anyway, so we should just get on to something uh, a little bit more fun today, because we have a real treat for our guests or for our listeners today. Our guest probably is fucking wondering why she's here already, <laughs> but uh, no, we're very excited uh, to give you this, you guys, this episode today. So we're going to get right into it. She is the MLA for Edmonton Highlands Norwood and the Alberta NDP's opposition critic for status of women and LGBTQ2S plus issues. She is in her first term at the legislature, but in two short but oh so very long years, she has become one of the most popular elected officials in the province. She's a lifelong Alberta, Albertan, a teacher, a social media star, which she kind of refutes, and the proud human in tow of beloved Kitty Oregano. It is an honor to welcome Janice Irwin to the Forgotten Corner this week, where we hope our listeners will learn more about the person behind the MLA status, find out what drove her into politics and the trials and tribulations of being there, 
and catch a glimpse of the kind of Alberta she strives to achieve. And of course, and as usual, we will be sure to take a little bit of time to hear her thoughts on the United Conservative government she sits across from and the absolute mess they continue to make. Ms. Irwin, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the Forgotten Corner. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor. It's well, we appreciate you at least throwing that word out to start makes us feel pretty good. Um, so I guess before we get into what we normally do on the show, I need to ask where is oregano. Yeah, thanks. I'm I'm really uh, appreciative that you asked about him first, um, because he, <laughs> he does listen to all of my zooms and, yeah. um, and you know gets gets pretty jealous when he's not involved so he is here um he's sleeping currently um but i will probably plan to wake him up sure oh wait a minute oh my gosh he just he just literally his ears up. were ringing a little yeah, bit like oh my gosh this is hilarious you just walked over i know the folks on the podcast oh my goodness he literally heard me talking about him and- <laughs> oh holy jeremy's cat just showed up i swear if my cat walks yeah. in the room right now that's gonna do the Gotham. we're doing the whole podcast about cats this is oregano <laughs> wow what sorry jeremy what what's your cat's name gotham gotham okay um yeah so we were planning to just talk about cats this whole time right i think yeah. so yeah this yeah. is the okay. cat episode yeah. um my, that, my my smoky usually makes an appearance on the podcast too she likes to just climb up on top of my shoulders from every for every every once in a while but she's nowhere to be found it's sleepy time right now so mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we could do a whole show about cats. Cause I think, well, we're, you and I are probably longtime cat lovers. Jeremy's brand new to the party. Like he, he wasn't wow. sure he was really going to be into cats until he got Gotham. And then he was like, shit, I like cats. It happens. Yeah. That's Even though great. he drives yeah. me crazy. Well, and, I, and, and the thing is, you know, I was worried about, oops, I just hit my phone. I was worried about, um, Oh my gosh, some uh, oregano hit the emergency call on my phone because he plopped down on it. And you okay, there we go. in the middle of our podcast. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> Swatting yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, so what I was going to say, though, is like I so I had a cat before. Um, his name was Domino years ago. And uh, Domino was like the cat from the shelter who'd been there the longest and was like, you know, he was like a street cat. So he didn't he never wanted to be inside. And sadly, he died uh, doing what he loved, pr- prowling the streets. He was hit by, hit by a car. So that was years ago. And I waited a long time. I was always like, oh, I wish I could get a new cat. But, you know, you just think you're busy and all the things. And so it was October of last year. Pandemic had been going on for months. And uh, I just thought, you know what, it's time. And uh, met Oregano and fell in love. And the rest, as they say, is history. But my, my worry is that, you know, you get one Oh, maybe he needs a companion. Then you get two, uh-huh. and so yeah, and suddenly you have seven cats, right? So that's my concern. But um, we we, so we got so- up to three and a seventy-five pound dog at one point, and uh, that the, the the three cats was not the best dynamic. One of them didn't super get along with the rest, but um, sadly she actually passed away as well. And then uh, the only sort of silver lining in all of that was the other three were like the best of friends and still are. And it's a pretty good dynamic. So you might get, you just stay off of like the SPCA type websites, like Facebook pages, because you'll end up with another one in short time for sure. (laughs) <laughs> but I, I, I think for our listeners, we'll move on for cat, from cats, just in case there's some that don't want us to do that the entire time. Hmm. But as we do on the Forgotten Corner, um, it's important that we sort of dive back a little bit into the guest's uh, life story. And uh, 
for our listeners today, today, I think it's something that they would have shown up for. So I really want to take some time and talk about uh, your life story and, and growing up in uh, Barhead, Alberta. Yes. Right. So uh, I'm going to just shut up a little bit and let you kind of talk a little bit about what it was like to, to grow up there and, and we'll get to how you got to today. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's, it's funny, I've said multiple times in the legislature, you know, like, I, I have total rural roots, um, the UCP like to sort of, uh, uh, you know, make fun of us all for kind of being urbanites. But the reality is, I've actually spent more of my life in rural Alberta, than I have in in uh, in urban Alberta here in, in in the riding that I represent. And if you don't know the riding I represent, Edmonton Highlands Norwood is very much urban. It's uh, you know um, made up of some of the the oldest uh, kind of uh, inner city sort of uh, neighborhoods. Um, and so a bit of a change. I live a block from 118th Avenue, Albert Avenue, uh, which as some folks know is known as a bit of a rougher part of town, but um, it's amazing sense of community. But I say all that just because it's a it's quite the contrast from where I grew up. I grew up in Barhead, born and raised, um, did all my K to 12 education there. And, uh, um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. Uh, I wouldn't change it at all. I had, you know, access to, to great teachers and, um, you know, a, a great little community. Of course, you know, looking back now, I, I, I was, I was clearly, uh, far more conservative back then. And I, I've, I've admitted to people before that my first, um, my first political involvement was uh, volunteering with the PCs, uh, Ken Kowalski, who was the MLA there for a long time. And, uh, and truly when I was young, I was, you know, teenager, I, I wanted to be politi politically involved and that's all I knew, right? You, you, that's. Well, the, the, and that, was that right? simply because that's sort of, when you grew up in Alberta, that's just what you did. Like the PC party was just sort of the party, right? Oh yeah, and especially in Barhead area. I mean, it was that's that's it was the, it was the PCs, right? I mean, um, I don't even know if I knew, especially when I was younger, that there were alternatives because if you saw a, li a lawn sign, guaranteed it was going to only be for the uh, for the PCs. So yeah, I mean, um, just that that was the way I you know as a as a young active citizen, that was the way I saw I could get involved in politics. And of course, it took me leaving Barhead and going to university in Edmonton and realizing there was a there was a whole world out there, right? But uh, but again, I wouldn't I wouldn't change it at all. Jeremy, you look like you had something to say, buddy. I was just wondering uh, if you could tell us a bit more about your political evolution because that's interesting. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people say as you get older, you get more conservative. Uh, you know, you're uh, what well, conservative is a liberal who's mugged by reality, which is of course a false uh, dichotomy. What, uh, like, I get you went to university and you were exposed to all these ideas that you weren't familiar with as like a country girl, but was there? Was there like a moment in particular that stands out to you where you're like, oh, I've been wrong all this time? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, um, and, I, and I have to say, you know, I became a social studies teacher, as I think you both know. I, you know, it was probably even slightly before heading to university, because I think especially in high school um, social studies, uh, I, you know, you, you, you especially in, in grade 12, uh, you really examine political ideology. So I start I think I was starting to. Uh, starting to get there, um, but it probably took leaving my uh, my hometown to to really get there. As far as like a pivotal moment, I don't know if I can po point to one, but certainly I remember, um, 
you know, uh, undergrad university courses where feeling like my, um, my, my head was really uh, exploding, right? Because I just, I hadn't had that opportunity to really um, dig into my own values. Um, so yeah, I don't think I can point to one piece, but I, I really think um, it was probably um, like I, re I really started to find my home with with the NDP and and really started to understand my values. Not until later, to to be to be fair, because what happened is I so I left Barhead. I did my undergrad degree uh, in education and uh, started teaching right away. Like I you know I finished my degree and um, I was I just turned twenty one and I left for. Balf, Alberta. That is the greatest places. town name in the whole province, right? by the way. Balf, Balf, yeah. like, like golf, but with a B. That's B A W L F. Right. With, with a W in there, yeah. B A W L F. Um, Where is that? Um, by Camrose. So yeah, only about a fifteen-minute drive from Camrose, southeast of Camrose. Is it? It's a hamlet. Um, it's a, a village. Village, yeah. I believe. Oh, yeah. okay, sorry. Yeah. Village of so, golf. I, uh, it's, it's the greatest thing. Anyway, sorry. Go on. Yeah. No. Go it. I, I. I. just. You know. So. So. Uh. Like I said, I'd been in Edmonton doing my degree, and and uh, a lot of the people in my in my cohort, uh, you know, teachers, uh, were were saying like, you know, I'm they're they're going to stay in Edmonton. They're going to get on the sub list. They're going to try to get a job in Edmonton. But I had the opportunity to, you know, just weeks after finishing my degree to go somewhere and teach exactly what I wanted to teach, which was mostly high school social studies. So I took, took a leap, headed out to Balf, Alberta and, uh, uh, you know, taught there. I didn't teach there a long time for four and a half years sort of thing. Um, then my, my next journey took me to Forestburg, Alberta, uh, where I was a vice principal. And, um, you know, I started to realize pretty quickly that I don't know if I, if, if, if rural Alberta was where I wanted to be the rest of my life and uh, uh, ended up back in Edmonton. And it was when I came back to Edmonton, um, I, was, I was actually working on, working on the curriculum. I got a job as a secondment with Alberta Education, which was meant to be a, um, a contract, a three-year contract. And I would return to my school board. I would return turn back to, to Forestburg. It turned into a, a full-time job with, with the government. And so I didn't go back. But it was at that time, um, as I was living in Edmonton, getting to sort of reacquaint myself with the city, that um, I started getting involved with the NDP. So you can kind of see this journey of like being in a conservative Barhead, Alberta, going to Edmonton University to, to become indoctrinated, deciding to go back to another part of conservative rural Alberta, uh, and then come back to Edmonton uh, for life, right? So you can you can see the trajectory there. Were, were there challenges in Balf, uh, as a teacher uh, and being a member of the LGBTQ community, did you face any issues from from parents that kind of thing while you were there? Well, fun fact, Scott, I was quite straight back then. Uh, for the viewers at home, straight in in air quotes. Uh, yeah, so no, I uh, I actually um, I get I get asked that question a lot. Like you must have faced a lot of uh, barriers and discrimination being. Uh, being an open, a, a, you know, teacher openly queer in rural Alberta, but I actually what I was I was dating uh, men back then. I know when I went to Forestburg, I I walked into the local diner and a woman right away set me up with her son who was a farmer. So I got lots of stories like that. But no, I actually didn't. Uh, I didn't. I didn't come out until I came back to Edmonton. So I came out later in life in my um, in my twenties, and uh, so my whole teaching journey, I was uh, I, I didn't encounter that. And I mean. This is a this is a whole other story. So cut me off anytime. But you know that's one thing that I've 
I've talked a lot about um, in the legislature, particularly when we were uh, debating Bill 8 um, in, in 2019, you know, I, I think back and of course, you know, of course there were signs and of course there were, there were, you know, those things in my subconscious where I, I was, I was repressing as, as many queer folks do, but I just think back to how, you know, I know there were kids who were, who were struggling and I, and I wish, you know, I wish I'd, um, you know, I wish I'd been, been there for them and I wish I'd been able to be out in a role model. Um, I can't change the past, but what I can do now is I can fight like hell for those kids that I know, you know, are in rural Alberta and are struggling and aren't safe to be themselves. And you can tell I get a little emotional thinking about it because, oh my goodness, the stories, the stories I hear, not just in rural Alberta, but um, even in urban centers where um, kids aren't safe. It's, 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 it's mind blowing in 2021 that that's happening. Do you, what, do you think that like you, you talk a little bit about how you sort of evolved a bit to kind of learn this about yourself and it kind of, you kind of realized it over time. Do you, do you look back and, and feel that maybe the environment you were in um, or like the, the world that you live in sort of helped keep it suppressed subconsciously, even where you, it took you longer to even realize for yourself because of like you say you, you were PC because that's the way it was. Yeah. Right. So were you straight because that's just what you were supposed to be? Yeah. You know, and I haven't, you know, I haven't really done a thorough uh, analysis of it, but I do think, you know, I know there were, you know, examples and indications even when I was younger growing up in Barhead. Right. But I like, I think back and I'm like, there were no, uh, there were no queer folks. I didn't know gay people in Barhead. And of course there were, I do remember one example that there was one person who, um, you know, at the time was like a crossdresser, but was trans, like that was, you know, the, the term that was used back, back then, but that person was trans. And I remember as a kid, how awful that person was treated. And I just can't, you know, I, I can't imagine what it was like for them um, being in Barhead and being being different, right? And so things have, you know, I have to say things have changed there. I haven't had a chance yet, but I've I've, I've chatted with folks at the high school there and they have a GSA. And my my dream once COVID's uh, not a thing is to go and visit visit them because like I said, things, things have shifted. I mean, they're still not perfect out there just like they aren't in a lot of parts of Alberta, but um, they're getting there. Now I, I want, sorry, go ahead, Jeremy. Well, you mentioned that there was a, uh, trans kid um in your school and i i guess this is more a comment than a question but i've noticed that sort of the the rhetoric around um gay rights that when i was growing up you know there's this debate about gay marriage and uh, you know whether you know marriage is between a man and a woman and all that uh, stuff and now you hear debates about trans people in bathrooms now yeah. and it's the same people making the same argument they've just moved on from like you know um picking on gay people to picking on trans people yeah. and I, I i guess um ha, is that something you've noticed as well and um do you have yeah. more uh, insight into that? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jeremy. And that's where, um, you know, when folks, you know, when, when I get the, 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 the trolls who, you know, tell, tell me it's time to move on from the gay agenda and that like, you don't need a parade and all those things. Um, we, this is where some of the biggest battles 
are still yet to be won when it comes to trans rights, right? Um, truly, I mean, the, the amount of um, hate and discrimination towards trans people is still incredibly high. And it's even higher if you're a trans person of color, right? So that's where I think the biggest battles are. I mean, I get, I get, um, you know, asked if I'm trans, called trans, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm a cisgender woman um, with, with a lot of privilege. But let me tell you, I will, uh, I will talk about trans rights uh, until the cows come home, because it's absolutely where we need to be, um, you know, where we need to be pushing the conversation. And, and, um, and I think that's where, you know, like, people will say to me, Oh, you're the, you're the ML gay. And like, you, you know, how it's, it's just so much pressure to have to like, speak about uh, or speak for the um, the LGBTQ2S plus community. And I say, you know, I cut them off and I say, absolutely not. I mean, I, I can't possibly as a white cisgender woman with a heck of a lot of privilege, I can't possibly claim to speak for a racialized trans person, but I can sure as heck try to amplify their voice in the legislature until there's a racialized trans person sitting with me in there. I'll, I'll do the best I can to be there for them, not to speak for them, but to try to amplify their voices. Do you, do you feel any pressure out of this though, out of that aspect that like you are a spokesperson for a, an entire community, it seems like in the legislature. And do you, do you feel sometimes that you're because, you know, that other people are looking at you to speak for them or that you're speaking for a community, a community, does that put pressure on you to, to, you know, say, a, say things a certain way or do things a certain does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It does. No. And I get asked that a lot. And it's like, like I said, I, I can't, I will never claim to speak for, um, you know, another, another person or another group. I will certainly use my platform and my privilege to fight for their rights. Absolutely. And the other thing is, you know, just because I'm, I'm the only openly queer MLA and I have emphasis on the openly, cause I mean, there's 87 of us. So come on. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm no mathematician, but stats here. Um, so yeah, like I, I, I don't, I don't have to um, speak for the community and I'll give you a great example. Look at the bill eight debate in 2019. I was surrounded by 23 NDP MLAs who fought like hell for the rights of queer and trans students, right? Like, you know, Rachel's been, been marching in parades, probably longer than I've been alive. Don't tell her I said that she's it's her birthday today too. So that wasn't, that wasn't an ageist comment, Rachel, I swear. But the point is um, there are incredible allies in our caucus who, who, who will, who will fight like hell. Like I said, they will speak up for LGBTQ2S plus rights. I don't have to be the only voice. Now I, I, I hate to jump around a little bit, but linearly, I wanted to ask you about 2015 and we were talking about when you got into politics because you ran for the federal NDP party in, in 2015. And I want to talk about that a little bit on a couple of things, why the federal NDP, but I also want to talk about the fact that you were running in a newer riding that was sort of two other ridings that were, were made up of two other ridings. And those ridings were historically conservative and you, you damn near won. like you were, you lost by about 6%, 40 to 34 so can you just talk about that? And sort like I said, start with why you got with the federal NDP in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So um, th the journey there was again. I had uh, I'll go back to my my life uh, tra trajectory there. I, I was uh, back in Edmonton. I was um, uh, working for the province in curriculum, and of course, yeah. I mean, as I said, education is something really important to me. But um, I'd started get I'd started volunteering with the NDP. 
um, in about 2011, and I'd started uh, um, just getting getting more involved. And um, there there was one there was one moment, or I guess series of moments, that really started to open my eyes. So um, I'll tell you the story. So I was back in Edmonton. I was uh, I was car free. Um, for, for many, many years, I didn't have a car and I ran to and from work every day. Um, so uh, yeah, I was, uh, so I was living in the, in the Highlands area and for folks who know Edmonton, um, my, my running route took me along um, the stadium LRT line. So kind of through uh, the neighborhoods of Macaulay and, and Boyle Street. And in that area, you see a lot of very visible signs of, of houselessness, of homelessness, right? Um, and it was really for me, um, like it just sounds so naive, of course, in retrospect, but you know, having been in rural Alberta and and having had a pretty, you know, fairly privileged life, just every single day to and from work, seeing folks who were not being served by multiple levels of government, right? Um, just an absolute crisis in in housing. And so um I started digging into that. I really did. I I um, I started actually asking questions. I met uh, with the, the, our member of parliament at the time, who was a guy named Peter Goldring, who was a conservative. Um, our, our, our neighborhoods um, for years uh, have, decades in fact, had been represented by conservatives at the federal level, yet at the provincial level, uh, mostly new Democrats, Brian Mason being one. Right. So it was really interesting to me. Right. Like, you know, just digging into this, like, how the heck does this happen? And so asking questions of, of our MP at the time about housing, being less than satisfied with the answers, getting more involved with the NDP, seeing that my values really aligned, kind of all led me to um, to running uh, federally for the NDP. And um, in 2013, so I launched my campaign two years early um, because I really felt we had an opportunity um, previous uh, folks like Ray Martin had run in the area and, and had done well, but of course um, uh, came up short. Um, like you said, Scott, it was a new riding called Edmonton Greasebaugh, um, which uh, is a misnamed riding because if you know Greasebaugh, it's a little tiny part in the north part of the riding, but a lot of the riding is, uh, you know, where I live, uh, Alberta Ave area, Parkdale, 118, that, that sort of part of, of the city. So anyways, I digress. But yeah, I mean, I really saw an opportunity. And so, so you know, I put two years of my life into a campaign. We raised tens of thousands of dollars. We got hundreds and hundreds of volunteers. Um, we were up against a conservative candidate that was um, well known, but not necessarily well liked. But if you, um, if you followed that federal 2015 campaign, you know what happened. Um, truly, I mean, if we can trust the polls, our campaign, we were winning for legit 95% of that campaign, but it was in those, and, and, and if you recall as well, this was the second longest campaign in Canadian history, um, many, many months. And so, uh, you know, uh, most of that campaign, we just had so much momentum, but it was, it was those last uh, two weeks, probably week, even maybe, even maybe the last week, I remember meeting people, I'd knocked on every door, multiple doors, some doors, multiple times, meeting people who knew me that last week could say like, Oh, Janice, yeah, we love you, but we have to vote for Trudeau. And I'd say, no, no, but you don't, you don't vote for Trudeau. You vote for your local candidate. Do you, do you even know the liberal who's running here? And of course, nobody did. The liberal came in late. He lives in outside of Edmonton. Like nobody knew the guy. But what happened in that campaign? Liberal surge. So a uh, liberal guy who did nothing, nobody knew, got about 20%. Me, 
worked hard, amazing team, tons of support. What'd you say? 34%? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then the conservative uh, winning with, with 40. So, you know, most of the, most of the riding, not voting for the, for the guy who's now our member of parliament. I'm not bitter though. (laughs) (laughs) What? Cause I think there's a general consensus that in 2015, the new Democrats um, sort of went in a direction that was at least perceived to be counter to what the party has stood for. I'm talking specifically about uh, promising a balanced budget and uh, get it in, in doing so getting outflanked um, on the left, at least in that respect, by the liberals, which, I mean, was like the major issue of the election. Were you concerned about the direction the party took? I know Mulcair ran a tight ship, so you sure as hell couldn't say anything about it, but he's no longer in charge now. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not going to lie, it was tough as heck because um, um, people didn't know Tom Mulcair um, at the doors. And if they did, they didn't like him. Right. So I was, you know, I couldn't rely on, um, on the, we, we know, especially at the federal level, how important the leader is. Right. And those countless examples of me meeting people who said, Oh no, but I'm voting for Trudeau. Right. Like they, they were voting for the leader, right. They weren't voting for their local candidate. And so I saw that, you know, I just, time and time again, especially at the late stages of that campaign. And so it was hard and it was especially hard, Jeremy, because, um, uh, you know, so again, going back to 2015, we know what happened in May of 2015, right? Uh, Orange Wave, Rachel was elected and a whole bunch of other NDP MLAs. A few months later, October 2015, the federal election. So having knocked on a million doors with provincial new dad, I shouldn't say a million, but a lot, trust me, every single day, uh, a lot of doors with- That's like every door in Edmonton. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But but truly, so the the riding of Edmonton Griesbaugh included parts of uh, Edmonton Highlands Norwood, Edmonton Northwest, Edmonton Beverly Clairview, Edmonton Manning, and what am I missing? Uh, Edmonton Decor, right? So five NDP MLAs within that area. Right. So you can imagine um, the, the, the contrast that I experienced and of, of people saying, uh, you know, uh, they, I would come to their door and be like, oh, yeah, I'm Janice running for the NDP. And they'd be like, I love Rachel Notley. And I'm like, me, too. I'm not going to say, oh, but by the way, Tom Mulcair is the guy. Right. Because they didn't know that. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I had to I had to in that campaign. Truly, I had to bring it bring it back a lot to uh, me and to my campaign. And to my values, um, because I knew um, the leadership wasn't going to win it for me. So, talk, tell us a little bit about the sort of the space between twenty you, after losing in twenty fifteen. When did you sort of make that shift towards the provincial party? And uh, did they approach you? Did you approach them? I, I know that you, for our listeners, you eventually you you're in uh, Brian Mason's riding, right? So when he, when he left, you, you took over and, and, and that's that, but, uh, did they come to you and, and say, and it was it after he had announced that he was leaving that they came to you? Yeah. So, I mean, right. Immediately following, I, um, uh, I had a lot of, um, sad days. Well, no, I honestly, the, the toughest part, um, the toughest part of, of losing, I, I'm not, I'm uh, totally serious was just how, um, how hard it was to accept that we'd now elected another conservative MP 
who couldn't be bothered, who, you know, uh, who lives in the far opposite end of the city, right, has no connection to the riding. And mark my words, as I said, you know, election night, like we, we wouldn't be seeing much from him. And, and sure enough, we, we don't, right? And that's, you know, that's the, the disheartening part. Um, and I felt like I'd let so many people down, right? Um, but no, so yeah, I went back to my job. I'd had, to, I'd, I'd had to take a leave for the federal election. I was working again for the province in curriculum at the time. So um, I had to take a leave. I went back to my job, um, continued working there for, for a few more years. And yeah, it was in um, uh, 2018 that uh, Brian Mason announced that he wasn't going to run again. And uh, uh, you know, I had a few people, I'm not saying it was any, necessarily anybody from the party, but just a few people who said, hey, like, had you thought about running provincially? Um, you know, do you, do you think you do this? And it, and it didn't take me much convincing to say, I'd love to throw my hat into the ring. And so, um, so I did. And, you know, I have to tell you, I truly thought um, I would be contested. So I thought there'd be a, a contested nomination. So I hustled. Um, I prepared as if I would be contested. And so I, you know, I sold memberships. I had a huge campaign launch, fill the hall. This was pre-COVID, of course, fill the hall with a couple hundred people to to launch my campaign. And uh, and I I think that maybe um, uh, scared away a few people who had been thinking about it um, because they knew I was serious and they'd seen um, the the team that we built and the hard work that we put into the federal election. So yeah. Uh, I didn't, I have to say, you you folks know the demographics of Edmonton Highlands Norwood. You know that it's a, a strong NDP area, but I have to tell you, I did not take that for granted. And I, uh, you know, I, it's probably just the worry wart in me, but I, you know, almost every day I thought, oh my gosh, what if I lose the seat and suddenly and uh, Highlands Norwood is no longer NDP. So, you know, I, I again, I, I hustled out there, knocked on doors and, uh, and, and met with as many folks as I could. And here we are. What? Why do you think maybe uh, places like the riding you're in, for example, there's such a difference between uh, provincial voting and and federal voting, right? Like you're in a you're in a conservative federal riding, and Edmonton is for most of my life, it's like all but one is always conservative, right? There's always that one token NDP MLA. And uh, who was, what was her name again? So I, I feel like an asshole right now. But, oh, MP. Uh, yeah. So Linda Duncan, Linda right, Duncan, our, right. And she eventually, she Conan. eventually yeah. stepped away. And that was, that was the end of the NDP having that seat, I believe. Right. Like No, Heather, was... Heather McPherson is the MP yeah. now. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. So we, Sorry. we held on to that seat. No, that's, that's no but, problem. We but the rest of Edmonton period. often votes conservative MP, yeah. but, but you sweep provincially for the orange. So do you, do you have any under like being on both sides of that and, and running for both parties? Do you have any insight as to why, why that is and what, why uh, federally uh, sort of the progressives can't get over the hump? Yeah, and of course, I mean, so yeah, other than Heather and Linda, I mean, there have been a few liberals, of course, um, elected in, in Edmonton as well, um, but pretty much all swept, as you know, in 2019, uh, Heather was the only non-conservative MP across Alberta. Um, so yeah, it's it's just so interesting to me. So and I, I mean, my area, particularly Edmonton Highlands Norwood, um, they're not voting conservative federally. Um, but because the, the the riding is so much bigger federally, a lot of the other pockets are. Um, but even so, like in my own neighborhood, there were people who had a sign for me provincially who had a sign for federally, right? Uh, so oh, I wasn't going to say his name. Darn it. Can you edit that part out? <laughs> yeah, well, Mo, if you're listening. 
That's right. Yeah, I'm sure he is. Right. He's uh he's uh Faith Goldie's buddy, right? Yeah, exactly. So, sir, I see. I like to talk about him as I have for the last few minutes without actually mentioning his name, and I slipped up there. But we're gonna oh well, we'll just throw a bleep in, like beep. That's right. Yes, yeah. please. It is, it is. It is much. Uh, it is blasphemy there. Um, the first censorship yeah, so, on our show. Yeah. So no, uh, like Scott, I wish. I mean, I especially following the election, like you know, just to try to really kind of just understand what's going on there, and I, I can't. I mean. Again, our, um, you know, it, it, we've been represented by conservative MPs for 30 plus years now, right? So, um, and I, I can't, I can't explain it. I think, again, one of the big issues, um, whether you disagree or not, and we don't get to need to get into a big debate about vote splitting, but that is a huge factor, right? Um, in multiple ridings, especially in Edmonton, like just, just dig into Edmonton Griesbaugh, Edmonton Center, Edmonton Millwoods as three examples right, where, um, you know, the combined vote of the Liberals and NDP would blow away um, the Conservatives. So again, my example of Edmonton Griesbaugh, what was it, 60, 60% of, of um, electors didn't vote for our MP, right? right. Like, it, yeah. it, for, it, we could talk about first past the post, and oh my gosh, I, I'm going off on a tangent here, but <laughs> I have to tell you, one of the things that, ex you know, that on election night in 2015, when it was just so devastating, the words, the sweet, sweet words of Justin Trudeau were ringing in my ears when he said, this will be the last election of first past the post, right? <laughs> I swear to you, I, I swear to you that that, you know, I, I remember saying to folks, well, you know what, at least there will be electoral reform. So yeah. this won't happen again. And again, I don't want to get into big debate about vote splitting, whether that's a thing, but you know, like that was, that was something that was like, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully be able to change our landscape in the next election. And of course, that promise was absolutely abandoned. There, there's not a lot of debate about vote splitting to be had. I mean, like, it is a thing like the le like the so called left or the progressive vote or whatever is split federally for decades. And whenever the uh, conservative party branches into a second party, whether that's provincial or federal, they tend to shit their pants after losing an election and they unite, right? Like Reform Party and Progressive Conservative Party of Canada become the CPC. Wild Rose and the Pro Progressive Conservative Party of Alberta become the United Conservatives. Both parties then adopt all policies that were in the like insane uh, of the two, right? Like the Reform Party insanity and then the insanity of the Wild Rose and this is how they govern. But anyways, I digress as well. But you're not, th this is something that happens. This, and I, if you're, you know, you live in a place where a conservative wins with 40% of the vote. I, I live yeah. in a place where the conservative wins with like 77. So, oh yeah. Yeah. So good, good times. But moving on from the federal part, but I, I want to talk about your, your role within the NDP uh, and just a little bit of, of sort of from your point of view, um, your first couple of years as an MLA, and I know that's opening up a pretty broad discussion, but um, you joined a party that had been the government, but then you, and you won your seat in an election that, that, that they lost, that you lost and then became the official opposition. And there are a few of you on in the caucus that, that did that as well. Um, can you just talk about sort of like what that was like when you first um, got elected and, and, and what it's been like being part of the opposition since? Yeah, and I guess, you know, that was basically, it was yesterday, two years to the day uh, yesterday that I was elected. And, um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it was it was definitely bittersweet um, election night because while obviously I was pumped to be um, to be elected, uh, you know, I saw that we'd you know we'd lost some incredible MLAs and we'd 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 not be forming government and and the government that would be forming would be a a destructive one to say the least, right? So yeah, um, and I I guess it it gives me both. Um, I mean, maybe it's an advantage. I'm not sure. Maybe it's a disadvantage as well. But you know, I didn't, I didn't have that opportunity uh, to be in government, so I don't know. You know, I don't know what that was like. I've only known opposition, and um, you know, it's, 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 it's hard. I think you know. I, I remember somebody saying that, like, uh, you know, uh, former PCML. Uh, uh, during during Rachel's time in government, the folks who were on in opposition were you know didn't work very hard and were pretty lazy and it's like a, a sweet job and I think I think it's what you put into it because um, I I really uh, have a chance to uh, to just uh, feel like I'm not busy and not working all the time. Of course, like I said, I think it's it's how you it's how you manage your time and how you how you um, uh, how you engage with folks. But I've certainly found it to be. Um, a lot of a lot of work, but also incredibly re- rewarding. Now we talked about. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Jeremy. Is, is there a sense in which you're sort of uh, unblemished by maybe some of the uh, poor decisions that um, the Albert NDP government made when they're in power? Like I don't know, uh, supporting Keystone XL. Um, not banning carding, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, like I do get asked questions from folks about, you know, uh, especially there's a lot of people who think I was in government. Like they think I've been in MLA longer than I actually just had a conversation with a guy who um, I can't even ask, remember what he asked me about, but uh, it was on, it was on Twitter and he's, he just said, Oh, sorry, I thought you'd been an MLA since 2015. And so I think I, I, people, people think that, but no, I mean, I'm not going to, um, uh, you know, I'm not going to um, criticize for, for when I wasn't there, right? I didn't have a seat at the table. So I wasn't there. I don't know what went into various decisions. But, um, you know, all I can do is I can commit to people that when we do form government in 2023, um, you know, you, you can absolutely um, be critical of me and, and blame me if there's things that I'm not um, being responsive on, or if, if I'm not listening to my constituents, but I mean, I can't, I can't go back and rewrite history. And, and like I said, I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, uh, abrogating myself from any responsibility because it's still my party. And I was still a, an avid supporter back when they were in government. Um, but all I can do is look forward. Right. And, and hope that uh, any mistakes that some folks may think were made, um, we can, we can address. Do you think that there were mistakes made? Um, you know, like I, I think your example uh, of carding is one that, you know, folks have talked about just that, um, you know, we should have they we I'll say we why not should have um, done more and I know, I know that that work was happening but I think sometimes we're also a, a victims of our own um, wanting to get things right and wanting, to, you know, having some incredible people in cabinet who are brilliant and um, who really wanted to do things right and not getting to everything that we wanted to get to. And so um, again, like uh, I know it's conversion therapy is an example I like to talk about, like, yeah, absolutely. The work was starting, um, but we didn't get there in time, right? Because I had so many people being critical, like Janice, you're such a, 
proponent of conversion therapy. Why didn't your government uh, get it back? Just to clarify, you're not a proponent of conversion therapy. Oh, sorry. Therapy. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. you're, you're a proponent of banning conversion therapy. Banning conversion therapy. Okay, Thanks. I need another uh, coffee. I, I'm looking forward to you clipping just that little piece and you know <laughs> po- posting it there uh thank you very much jeremy for the clarification yeah proponent of banning conversion therapy why why didn't you get it done i mean i know our team was working on it i know they'd had um uh, set up a working group had a whole heck of a lot of conversations um but didn't get to it but they also got to a whole lot of other amazing things Minimum wage. Let's talk about that, right? So again, of course, there's going to be mistakes. Of course, there's things that um, we we could have pushed further on. But all I can say now, Jeremy, is like, let's look to 2023 and let's get get it done. You're, uh, I would say, you're widely perceived as being um, sort of, I guess, uh, on the left edge of the Alberta New Democrats. Do you think that's an accurate perception? Uh, do you think it has anything to do with your uh, perhaps sexual orientation? Um, or is there sort of, a, uh, do, do you have sort of this radical, more radical spirit than say Rachel Notley or, uh, you know, Kathleen Ganley or, you know, whomever? Yeah, I mean, listen, uh I believe in things like my gay agenda, absolutely. Um, But as I've said before, what does my gay agenda look like? It looks like investing in housing, in harm reduction, in healthcare, in education. It means putting people first. It means putting people before profits, right? So you know what, if that that makes me a radical, then so be it. But, uh, you know, the, I think, there's also a general consensus that the party brass, right, like Rachel and other uh, people who really hold power in the party are very uh, cautious and moderate. So how do you sort of how do you sort of reconcile that, right? Because I think on the one hand, you probably have a fair amount of people um, wanting you to maybe hold your own party's feet to the fire. I know you've said that criticizing your party is good, um, which I think is a very rare thing for a politician to say, but sort of how do you strike that balance? Because obviously um, you want to form government in 2023. You're a fan of Rachel. Yeah. So, so how do you, how do you strike that balance? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I, I really, like you said, I am a fan of Rachel Notley and um, a, a huge supporter of her leadership and excited for her to be our premier in 2023. And I've, you know, I've found I've been able to have, um, you know, uh, conversations with Rachel and with with my with my caucus mates that, of course, might not always be comfortable. But um, I think it's clear that Rachel is is listening and that we are all listening. You know, we've been you, I, you, I've, I've said multiple times that, you know, I've been I've been calling folks in Calgary nonstop, um, trying to hear their perspective on issues. Um, I've been talking to people all over the province who admittedly haven't ever supported the NDP before, right, have supported the UCP, um, maybe haven't been politically active before. Um, you know, we're listening, we're, 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 we're building feedback. I mean, at this exact time, we're having anti-racism consultations, you know, we're, uh, Alberta's future, we're, 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 we're asking folks for their feedback on the direction we want to go. And so, yeah, I, I'm hopeful, Jeremy, that, um, that we will, we'll, you know, one of the biggest, um, 
I guess, criticisms that, that we get or that I get anyways, or that I hear is like, you know, you can't just be um, negative, right? You can't just be oppositional. You need to be propositional. And so um, we're really going to be, and we all, we have been putting forth um, proposals, putting forth a vision that I think folks will be able to get behind in 2023. Now there's work that you've got on the go. Like you said, you you get out of being in the opposition, kind of what you put into it, right? And and you've got, you you came in, you talked about it before, and we'll say again, a proponent of banning conversion therapy. Yeah. And, and you came in um, with GSAs was another one that you were really uh, looking to, I, I guess, protect when you came in, because this is what, what happened when they did, when the UCP did come in, they obviously fucked that all up. But I, my, my question, I guess, is, um, for the last 14, 15 months, literally every issue seems to be on the back burner uh, behind COVID. And uh, I, I guess I want to ask you about um, where you see some of those issues that you were really passionate about when you came in. Are you able to focus on those still? Do you feel like COVID took away focus from those? And um, is you know what kind of work can you get done between now and and the next election to bring the focus back to that? Yeah, no, that, that is a really great question. And I think, um, you know, I think uh, uh, GSAs, that's a great example, because as we know, in 2019, um, uh, this UCP government was the first in Canada to roll back rights for the LGBTQ2S plus community um, in making it harder for kids to access GSAs in schools. And, and so, um, you know, not that it's, it's I, I don't think it's, it's um, fallen on the back burner, because I've certainly had, um, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with folks. If anything, we know that COVID has um, exacerbated some of those challenges, especially when kids were learning at home. I mean, there are kids in this province whose only safe space is at their school, right? Kids who aren't safe at all at home. And, um, you know, I was very aware of that. And I've, I've had lots of conversations with kids in GSAs, with teachers who are behind, you know, su supporting those GSAs. And so, yeah, I mean, I think... My, my dream was, and I, I've said it so many times in the legislature and on social media, my dream was that, you know, um, the, the, this pandemic would, um, would compel us to really um, examine the gaps in our system and, and to really, um, you know, sort of ass assess what's, what, what needs to be done to ensure that, you know, the, the gaps in, in housing and in, and in healthcare and, you know, uh, harm reduction um, can truly be addressed. But, you know, um, we've got a government that's, you know, that's not going to be willing to to um, change their course or to look at how this pandemic has impacted, um, uh, you know, marginalized folks, racialized folks, students uh, in, in, you know, queer students, as an example. So it's it's with um, it's with a lot of, I guess, sadness that I don't know if we're going to change our course anytime soon. But I do think um that's where, you know, we got to give people hope and that in 2023, we will, we will get there. I, I think a, a, a common criticism, at least I hear in the, you know, circles I hang out with online of the Alberta NDP was that a lot of the progressive changes they made were done in such a way that it was very easy for their successors to just roll them back. Um, I think minimum wage would probably be a big exception to that, except, of course, the Conservatives created a two-tiered uh, wage system. But 
I mean, there's still $15 for, you know, adults. Um, is that a concern of yours that while sort of progressives um, take a more slow and cautious approach to governing, um, their opponents aren't? And there's a lot that the UCP have done that the NDP may not be able to reverse come 2023 if if you win. Like, is that a concern you share and what, what can be done about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure, like, I, I don't know what, um, what examples you, you could point to, because I just, I think, um, really, most pieces of legislation can be reversed, right? And we know Jason Kenney made those commitments. Um, uh, curriculum, of course, is something that's top of mind for me all the time. Um, you know, he made it very clear that he was going to put those documents through the shredder, um, despite them being documents based on years of research and collaboration and evidence, right? Uh, and not just some documents thrown together by copying and pasting Wikipedia and by uh, quoting his, his, uh, his, his buddies who have no expertise in, in K-12 education. Anyways, I digress. But um, yeah, I mean, the point being that, um, uh, you know, I think in 2023, when we're elected, we are going to need to um, do just what they did, but reverse uh, some of the legislation that was so incredibly um, destructive, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think I'm like, I'm not really thinking about that right now, I guess, Jeremy, I'm just looking ahead and doing everything I can so that we will be in a position in 2023, uh, that we can make those changes. You kind of alluded it to just now talking about the curriculum. I kind of wanted to ask you about that today. Cause I mean, our last episode, we or a couple episodes ago, I can't remember my brain now, but we had, I think it's uh, our last episode. No, Nenshi was our last episode. I just oh, yeah. Jesus, right? <laughs> you forgot uh, about who? that old who? one. <laughs> Sorry, what? Yeah, yeah, he's kind of yeah. obscure, so yeah. I don't know. But we had Dr. Carla Peck on, and obviously she's a social studies curriculum expert, yep. and uh, she's got a lot of uh, problems that I think are shared by, what, 27 other school divisions at this point or something like yeah. that anyway certainly 50 some percent of the students in the in the province uh, but you were a social studies teacher yeah and uh you also worked on the curriculum before the ndp and then Absolutely. a little bit after they they came in so you have a very uh unique sort of look at this from different angles can just give us your thoughts a little bit on on this rollout and what do you think they're trying to accomplish through this social studies curriculum i mean because their their point is we just want people to be not we just want them to have knowledge just know stuff oh gosh well honestly uh scott we could do probably 10 hours just on curriculum so i'll try to restrain myself um because yeah you're right um so my i started working in alberta education just on social studies curriculum um back in 2011 12 yeah so like that was my world and then my my next position was um executive director with high school curriculum so yeah i have a lot of uh in my my graduate work my my uh, phd coursework i didn't finish my phd but all my coursework was was in this topic as well curriculum and so yeah um i just it's it's um, it's just so disheartening. And it's very funny too. You mentioned I worked under PC governments and I did uh, consecutive PC ministers who, uh, uh, who um, you know, were starting the process of curriculum development, development and never actually moved forward with it. So it's just, it's funny when, um, you know, when, when this NDP curriculum is being criticized, when there was no 
NDP curriculum implemented, right? The social studies curriculum that uh, Jason Kenney and others seem to have such a big problem with uh, was implemented under PC governments, right? Uh, it was implemented in stages. So I, that's why I say governments because it was multiple governments. And uh, and so, yeah, and when I'm, I'm uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, painted as a radical socialist or whatever by by Jason Kenny, Kenny's warriors on on social media, right? It's like no, actually, a lot of that work was was under the PCs. So fascinating, but um, no, I mean, again, the social studies curriculum is is uh, uh, that as as proposed by the UCP, I should say, um, is absolutely troubling. It's troubling to teachers. It's troubling to anybody who has any sort of understanding of developmental appropriateness for young people. Um, yeah, absolutely. There's a space for for knowledge, um, but there's a bigger space for meaningful learning and um, for deep learning. And you don't get at that by um, uh, throwing lists of, of, of uh, names and topics at students without any sort of logical scope and sequence. It, I mean, everybody I talk to that is in the, in the industry of educating people seems to be horrified by this thing they're cherry picking the odd person that says this one little bit is okay about that and then i think sheldon kennedy right came out and was talking about how the consent part was really great and then like two days later publicly like distanced himself from the curriculum because he's like whoa hey i just want you to know i'm not saying this shit is any good and um but he, I mean, Kenny spent what, like two years talking about NDP indoctrination, right? Before, yeah. before he came in and this was, we're, we're indoctrinating, they're indoctrinating our children with all these things. Another thing that he talked about very openly that I thought fine was odd was his need to crush collectivism, right? Like he, he wants an individualistic world. I mean, is this just no ideology he, there? Right. Yeah. Right. And so like, is this not just exactly that, but, but way worse than he was ever blaming anyone else for just trying to erase any mindset of, of critical thinking. And, and yeah. like you said, you saw, you went to university and oh my, like you, you got, you, you, your whole world was opened up, right? Like all yeah. of a sudden your brain expands and you're like, Jesus, there's a whole world of stuff I wasn't aware of. And it yeah. really expands your mind. He, he, seems hell-bent on erasing any of that in Alberta. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a fascinating study for a guy who talks about how ideological um, our curriculum was when you hardly need to look at uh, uh, any, you know, any, any page of, of the K-6 curriculum as drafted to see um, to see ideology. And, and worse than that, I mean, like I said, there's no grounding in research, in evidence, in any sort of understanding of kids, like has been asked by many people before, has ha, ha, have these writers even met a kid? I'm not sure. So um, yeah, and I I mean, like in all seriousness too, it's just it's just so troubling because we um, we know that you know, especially the young, you know, we're talking kindergarten kids, grade one kids. Those are such um, formative years, and we know uh, that what, what kids learn is, is crucial. And of course, there's a lot there with how, how teachers present it. We're not talking pedagogy, but, um, and we know teachers will do an amazing job despite if they're forced to teach this curriculum, they'll, they'll, they'll figure it out. They'll make it work, but they shouldn't even have to be in that position. I wonder if there's an actual chance here. Like, I mean, they actually, as bad as the UCP has been, and I'll, I'll disclaim anything about them walking things back by saying when they do walk something back, they only partially ever walk it back. But there has been times where public yeah. 
outcry and backlash has caused them to change their mind about things. Uh, initially, doctor stuff um, early in the pandemic, right? Some of the fee changes that they had going for April 1st, they walked some of that back. Uh, yeah. Coal policy that they're reinstating, not, you know, these kinds totally. of things. Do, yeah. do, we th do we think that, uh, do you think that, that pressure, enough pressure will cause them to, to pull this thing back? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, but that's certainly what I've been telling folks is that they need to keep speaking out. We've been absolutely inundated by emails of uh, correspondence on this topic of curriculum. And so, you know, absolutely, I keep encouraging people to, to write, to speak out, to request meetings with their MLAs. And, and I think people are really doing that. Um, uh, I'm hopeful. I mean, what's what, you know, I asked Jason Kenny in the legislature on uh, time is confusing, you know, just this week, Thursday, I think. Um, you know who like everybody's pulling out you've got no support from teachers from indigenous leaders um from school boards across the province like who's going to teach this curriculum you right uh a premier was was not there to answer the question but um uh and the answer came from the minister of children's services who uh instead of really answering it chose to denigrate teachers and the teachers um and the alberta teachers association but that's that's another story but i mean Rebecca what, what are they is yeah. a uh, close friend of the show. She is a big fan of both of us. She, she oh. really, really likes me. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I bet. I bet. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that. Um, yeah. So no, I mean, what what will they do if they're not getting um, school boards on board? And without already most of the large urban boards on board, um, how are you ever going to have a representative representative pilot if um, so many folks have already pulled out? Now I'm going to switch topics again here, but I want to make sure I ask about pandemic stuff with you a little bit, because just timing wise, I think, I think we're going into a pretty serious problem here for the next few months. And I think that uh, this wave could and might very well just be the worst one that we had yet. As, as a member of the opposition, you're watching this pandemic response for the last year. I, I've actually thought about it in my head a few times, like pol politically, political wise, at least, I feel like the NDP is lucky to be in the opposition during this pandemic in the sense that if the NDP, like we're, we're watching the UCP can't please anyone. If the NDP had been running this like or doing this, like I wonder to what level the vitriol and hate from both sides might be coming. But I guess I'm just asking like, um, what have your thoughts on the on their response been, and and do do you do you have tangible ideas of what like the NDP would have and would be doing right now to deal with this? Because um, do we like you know close schools, close businesses, don't close schools, don't close businesses? Like, wh what have your impressions been this whole year, and what do you think we should be doing right now? Yeah, I mean, and of course, that's, that's the criticism from, um, you know, from folks who, who think we are just, uh, uh, you know, who think we're just being um, uh, oppositional and, uh, you know, what are the words Jason Kenney uses, divisive and whatnot, right? Uh, of course, they're going to, to use that, but um, it's not, uh, it, it, it's, it's been clear, and let's talk about education, because of course, that's a topic I'm, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about. Um, uh, it was as early as, gosh, like last summer, um, we offered a clear plan for safe schools, right? We said right away, like, listen, this is going to be, this is going to continue to be a challenge. We need 
to, um, you know, we need to invest. So we talked about things like class sizes. We talked about things like the need to hire additional um, staff, right? We talked about uh, mental health. We talked about the infrastructure challenges. The list goes on, right? Um, we had a clear plan laid out. Did Jason Kenny and the UCP listen? Not at all. They didn't take up any of those recommendations, not in the short term anyways. Um, instead, what sort of things did they do? They fired um, 20,000 education workers on a long weekend saying that EAs weren't, uh, weren't necessary. I, I talked to countless EAs who were doing essential work supporting kids in their trans transition to online learning, um, doing just, just incredibly important work um, for, for kids, right? So, I mean, like, yes, of course we're going to be criticized, but I think truly, I mean, obviously being as, as objective as I can be, I think we have offered solutions. You've seen us, we've, we've had press conferences nearly every day where we're offering ideas and we're offering um, uh, uh, solutions. I mean, I feel like personally, I've seen that a little bit more recently from like uh, Rachel Notley, for for example. I think I saw her tweet a couple not too long ago something about um, pushing for pushing for some restrictions and and support for the people that you're restricting, right? Because this is always the argument: like you can't just tell a restaurant to close down and then not not help them stay afloat while they're closed. These kinds of things, but I. Maybe I'm just I'm just one person, so it's anecdotal, right? But I I didn't feel like I saw that as much in the beginning, and I felt like governments across the country, even provincial governments and oppositions, all sort of approached this from the standpoint of, yep, we got to flatten the curve, we got to do this, and we're going to have to live with this virus. But nobody thought we were going to be living this with this virus for this long. And I think objectively speaking, by looking back at some of the ways that the, our, our government has handled restrictions or handled what they do, has made it be not only drag out for longer than it needs to, but be worse than it needs to be. I mean, we're by far, like they're talking like, what Ontario I'm rambling here but Ontario is like curfew lockdown everything yeah. and proportionately we're basically in the exact same boat they are we're probably worse off than Ontario for active case counts right now yeah. and yeah, so yeah. um it feels like what we all thought was going to work didn't work yeah. and I'm wondering if there's room for an opposition party to push for the right thing, which is, I, in my eyes, shut this shit down, give everybody the resources they need to stay shut down, and let's get done with this once and for all. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And again, I think we we could have avoided that by um, uh, by this government listening far earlier on. Um, and I think what, for me, one of the most troubling parts is the back and forth, right? And, you know, just to bring in my critic role here as a critic for, for women and LGBTQ issues as well, but for women in particular, um, we know that women have been disproportionately impacted by this pandemic. And one of the ways they've been impacted more than, than their male counterparts is when kids, uh, I mean, think about the, the tens of thousands of kids in, in school divisions right now in Calgary in particular that are being sent um, back to home uh, online learning. Um, we know that it's women primarily, not just women. Of course, there are men that are impacted too, but women for, for all the people, the trolls that will say, what about the men? Um, the data is clear that, that it's often women whose 
um, jobs are impacted, who have to make the choice to maybe no, not go back to work because they don't have access to the supports I need. And that can lead to a whole conversation as well, Scott, about the need for investing in childcare. Like there's so many things that this government could have done, could have taken seriously early on, things that we've been talking about. It was, it was March of, I believe it was March of 2020 when I first raised the issue of the plan, what's the plan for women? And I was laughed at the first time I raised that in the legislature. I said in the legislature, mark my words, this will have an impact. You want to talk, uh, talk, um, you know, in, in their language of the economy, which of course they feel like they monopolize, but they do a terrible job at. Um, mark my words, you will see an impact on uh, the number, the job numbers. Watch as women do not return to work in the same uh, rates as men. Sure enough, job numbers came out later bingo right so we've shared countless times where they could have been taking action they could have been taking these issues seriously and they're not i feel like the pandemic ought to open people's eyes to a, a better world that we could live in and a better way to do things i mean we all figured it out at least for a few weeks everybody seemed to understand this collectivist idea of like your health is my health i, I better take care of you to make sure that I'm taken care of. Yeah. Remember when uh, we were all in this together? Right. Yeah, those were, those how how were the days, hey? Right. I, yeah. Like just like Franco Terrazano, I'll say so much for all in this together, as he was, because but that he wrote that to be like, nurses should make less money because like we're all in this together. We're well, all in this my, together. But. You know, and my, yeah, it's my, interesting how that works. My my favorite um, manifestation of all in this together lately has been the. COVID-18 MLAs who, uh, who are, you know, were, were in this together. And then suddenly they realized that, uh, 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 their, you know, it was a good opportunity to be critical of their ineffective premier and, uh, and now are speaking out against um, public health measures. Right. So, you know, and I did some, I, I did a member statement long, long ago where I just kind of, I went back through Hansard and news stories and I found some of the lovely quote quotes from these MLAs, you know, Angela Pitt and Miranda Rosen and others who talked about how important it is that we just hang in there and that we, you know, look after each other. And then, you know what, as soon as it got a little tough, uh, that was all out. I just threw all that out the window. Well, they, they were going to do it. They were all in for about six weeks. Like we'll do yeah, yeah. for a bit, but like, yeah, and, I and I loved the number of news stories I found where those same MLAs were critical of the MLAs who traveled, right? Like, you know, how dare you? Uh, well, this do is that. A, speaking so of which, didn't um, uh, uh, what's her name? Um, the the former municipal affairs minister, Tracy Allard. Didn't she deliver a poem uh, oh, in the legislature about, about cancel like culture. cancel culture? Yeah, I was very. Um, I was very happy to um, uh, to have not been in the legislature uh, that day, but um, I, I heard it was riveting. I, I refused to listen to it because I'm, I'm told it was quite cringy, to be honest. But yeah, uh, just just amazing lack of uh, self awareness from some of these folks, right? So we're gonna let you get out of our hair soon. We all got I, Saturdays to get to. Jeremy, I'm gonna ask her one, and then you can ask her one, and then we'll let her go. Okay, is that all is right. that cool, Janice? Yeah, that's great. I, I do have Come a thing on. here soon. So uh, all right. that's okay. I should have asked how long, but you know, no, what? no, we're is... already we can see that we're already on the move around your home. So uh, we figure you probably have to start getting ready for you, something. So Jeremy, you have a you lovely get, kitchen. Jeremy, oh, you get one and you. then I'll take one. Go. Or, okay. Um, 
So there's sort of this uh, this um, common perception of you as sort of the cool MLA. You know, I've uh, I've um, seen you likened to Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I think a lot of that has to do with your um, your strong posting uh, abilities. Uh, but but what do you make of that comparison? Is that flattering to you or? Or do you maybe maybe you're not so comfortable with being compared to like someone else, and that you want to be your own uh, figure? Like what? Like what do you make of this? Uh, you know, I guess Janice mania, if you will. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I mean, yeah, I I I, I just. Um... I just have to reflect on the fact that, you know, I've been really fortunate. I've been able to build a pretty big platform on social media, but um, I think it's only, it, it, it's, it's, it's only important because I can use that platform to talk about the issues that matter. Right. And so it's not, uh, you know, it's not about, um, uh, you know, uh, I don't know my, my ego or whatever, but I, I, every time I post, I, I realize, holy crow, like there's going to be a lot of people who see this. And so, um, uh, you know, so, so to think about my words, I suppose, but then also I, I recognize like, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'll be thinking about posting a video of myself dancing with oregano and, you know, there's the voice in my head that says like, oh, Janice, should you post this? Like, does this, is this like professional? Is this what the, the message you want to send? And then I say, I don't really give a shit. Like it's who I am, right? There's haters are going to hate regardless uh and i'm gonna I remember be seeing you getting into trouble for that like you're, you're a politician do political things yeah 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 like and i did i think i'd done a video where i was dancing or something and, and like oh my gosh do you ever work and i remember when they posted that i just had like day full of meetings and just like you know uh you know i'm, I'm never going to complain about my workload but like you know yeah you can there will be no dancing how can you possibly dance at a time like this right in the midst of a pandemic how dare you Fuck no you and for I mean, trying to find happiness yeah exactly <laughs> and uh and so no haters are gonna hate regardless and so i just gotta be myself and uh you know for every hater there's a whole bunch of people who um who spread love and to and who sh to share their love with me and i think that's kind of amazing I mean, that might be actually a, a good place to finish off because my question was kind of involving that because we never really got a, a good chance to talk about um, being being a openly queer member of the legislature. Um, you have been very popular. You've gotten you, you have become very popular, but with that popularity has also been some vitriol and some uh, I hate using the word attack sometimes, but attacks that toward you even right at your office. Right. I think there was vandalism at the office. Um, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about navigating through that. And uh, do you ever have days where you just, where, where it brings you down a little bit? Because, you know, we, we're all fucking human here. Yeah. And you know what? And I think that was, you know, the, the vandalism of my office happened after being really vocal about um, racism, uh, about attacks on Black Muslim women in our city, multiple attacks about um, white supremacy. And, you know, they, the, that, that vandalism happened after getting a whole lot of really awful messages from um, people who were offended by my words on social media. I can't say those, those things were uh, absolutely linked, but you know, one might speculate. And so, yeah, I mean, that was, that was awful and that was gross, but it was also like, 
gosh, that this what I experienced was a fraction of what racialized folks experience every day. So again, yeah, I, whatever. I'm gonna if the if the plan from those folks who um who who vandalized was to get me to to stop talking or to silence me, like absolutely not. It had the opposite effect. And so um yeah, there are times to answer your question, Scott. Yeah, there are times where it's like, okay, it's you know, I, I post something and like the response is that's the ugliest dude I've ever seen or something like that. It's like, okay, like really, but um, truly it does not affect me the way it used to. When I started, I, I, I was, I was definitely far more bothered by the attacks on my appearance or my sexuality, but uh, you know, I, I see now that it's, it's not about me. It's, it says a whole lot more about that person. Like imagine just, you know, I, the, the, the place they must be in to spend their day um, saying awful things on the internet. And in many cases, these are real people, right? Uh, they're not just bots. Uh, and so, you know, I respond with empathy and, and sometimes, uh, you know, you just gotta, uh, you just gotta, just gotta move on and keep doing what you're doing despite the haters. We have, I mean, we have a, and I'll, one quick thing, like we have uh, this sort of perception sometimes that people have of Alberta, right? And uh, it's very conservative and sometimes, and we, we, we definitely have a faction of this province that is racist. We have a faction of this province that there is homophobia in this province. There is all kinds of this kind of thing here. Um, how do you view Alberta? Because, and um, I mean, you live in Edmonton, so it's a lot more progressive than where, where I live, but um, what would you say to maybe the outsider of that someone that's not from here when if they have a certain view, maybe negative of our province, what do you say to them? Um, yeah, what do you say to them? Yeah, and I, I mean, I truly believe I know there's there's pockets of conservatism across this province. Absolutely. There's no denying that. But I also know that there's some really incredible um, people everywhere. I mean, I was in Medicine Hat. I was in your area um, last year, and and you know, countless people came up to me in Medicine Hat, uh, thanking us for the work they were doing and saying they, you know, they 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 support us. And so, um, and and I talk to people. I, I truly do. I talk to people all over the province who, you know, who've who've admittedly, you know, never been involved with the NDP before, who've signed up for a membership, who are, you know, abandoning the UCP, whatever it might be. These are daily conversations I have, and I think for that outsider outside of Alberta who thinks, you know, Alberta is just this. Um, you know, this, this, this backward province with a premier who wants to take the province back even further. That's not our province, right? Um, we are, I, I really do believe we are a, a, a kind and loving and forward-looking province. Um, we just need to get there and we will in 2023. It's a great place to end the show. Listen, Janice, I really want to thank you for giving us time today. Um, what I learned, I, you know, we always knew you were the cool MLA, but what we learned today, I think is there's a lot of passion behind uh, your voice and a lo love for this province. So, uh, we're supposed to be, you know, we're mortal enemies, right? We're the media, you're the politician, but uh, appreciate you being here and appreciate you sharing some of that passion that you have for Alberta with us and our listeners. You're so welcome. And uh, yeah, I just appreciate the conversation and uh, let's do it again sometime. For sure. hundred percent. Thank you so much, Janice. Thanks, Melissa, in the background. We'll talk, we'll talk to you guys again. Appreciate you and being bye, here. Oregano. Bye, Oregano. Yeah, take care. Thank right. you. Goodbye. Yeah, you bet. Take care.
Yeah. All right, you guys, this is the time in the show where we thank those of our patrons who go well above and beyond anything we could ever expect to Nancy Niles, to Chris Sterwold, to Big Red Machine, and to Dave Bonmiller. You guys are, uh, you truly humble us with your support and contributions. To our other patrons, uh, same thing. You guys couldn't do this without you. Um, to everyone else, uh, our content will always be free. So uh, keep listening, share with your friends. We hope you guys enjoyed this one. We'll catch your act next week. Bye-bye.